I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, I can't quite believe that we have now spent the last two years doing podcasts every week or every other week. This is episode 79. This week, I was in Dallas at the Stegen Institute, which is a business development, leadership development academy, and it was the annual reunion. My coach from Stegen, a guy by the name of Videva, gave a really inspiring presentation. He talked about dancing with the always emerging future. And what he said is that the most important thing is having a hand to hold. And the company that we keep on our journey is so important. A big part of that is the community that we build and find ourselves within. And I am so happy to be here with all of you today and any time that you listen in. This episode focuses on excerpts from five of the podcasts that we've recorded this year. You'll hear Sonia Perkins talk about her career and Maddie Moe also talk about his. You'll hear Glenn Kaino talk about magic and art and Kemi Elisame on information circles. We then end the episode, end the year with Adam Pendleton on why art matters. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y. K-L-E-E dot com backslash Heidi, and they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended for each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co. worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. 
Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website, www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D coaspen.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co on my podcast to receive the special discount. We start this episode with a conversation I had with one of my very closest friends. Sonia Hoel Perkins invests in people and companies that matter. She's the founder of the Perkins Fund, Project Glimmer, and Broadway Angels. Project Glimmer inspires every girl to envision and realize her empowered future. Broadway Angels is a network of top female venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. Sonia has been a venture capitalist for over 30 years and was named one of the top most powerful people in global finance. Talk about some of the experiences that led you to your career. You have had such an impressive and impactful career as a woman in venture capital in Silicon Valley. And it's one of the things that you know we've connected on is this idea of how you can be both and, right? I, I remember one of the first times we met, I was so impressed by all the things that you had accomplished, all the things you were able to see that other people couldn't see professionally and in terms of opportunities for technology and, and the future. And I loved the fact that you also loved fashion and art and fun. <laughs> Those are <laughs> I think first. We even talked about People Magazine. And I know. I, just, <laughs> I, I love reading People Magazine. As oh. do I. And, and when we met, I, I hadn't actually met very many people that I would say had those kind of interests that were really in alignment with mine as well. Well, I also, I mean, the reason why I read People Magazine is I want to know what everyone else is reading. You know, you want to be, mm. you don't want to be out of it with the world, right? You don't want to be some mm. ivory tower intellectual or something like that and not know who Kanye West and is or something like that. So, um, but my career was kind of an interesting one. Um, you know, obviously it ended up very well, um, you know, was a partner at a very large venture fund and have made some really outstanding investments as a venture capitalist in a really um, competitive field. But it didn't start out that way. It, it basically started out when I was at the University of Virginia and my parents um, were very kind and paid for my education, but they didn't pay for any of my spending money. And um, I needed to work and I wanted to go to Europe after college because I felt like I'd grown up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I. Um, 
had gone to school there. And so I wanted a little bit more education that required not being at home. So going to Europe for six months seemed to be a good, a good thing to do after college. And so in order to do that, I had to get some jobs and I figured out that the most lucrative jobs as a student was to work as a computer programmer, as well as in, um, in the troubleshooting lab, because PC computings were computers were just, coming out and you got $8 an hour doing that instead of $4 an hour working at the gym. And so I, I did that and then um, went to Europe. And one of the reasons why I went to Europe is I didn't get any job offers after graduating from UVA, which was in 1988, because in 1987, there was a big stock market crash. And it's probably like a time like now where there's young people weren't getting jobs. And so um when I came back to the United States, I moved to Boston and I decided I wanted to be um, in a field that I looked at an entire company instead of just a part of a company. So I didn't want to just do marketing or sales or finance. I wanted to do something that was what I thought would be strategic. And I narrowed it down to venture capital and, and management consulting. And I got a job as a venture capitalist uh, because I'd had PC experience and the venture industry was just starting to invest in PC software. And before they were just doing mainframe and mid-range computing. And, you know, while my experience today would be very little compared to, you know, a, a computer programmer or something like that, it was very um, relevant at the time because very little was known about the PC. And so the job I got was an entry-level job. And I think for women, it's probably was the best to get an entry-level job because it's not a lot of risk if the person doesn't work out and people are willing to take a risk on an entry-level job. And so my job was to cold call companies and I would call, cold call you know, American software companies. And I was looking for companies that were growing really rapidly and also um, profitable. And then once I found one, I had tried to convince them to raise venture capital and convince them the, the benefits of that. And I was very good at it. Um, I found three companies that all went public, including one that's been in the news lately, McAfee Associates. And, you know, I talked to John McAfee um, in 1990, 1990 or 1991. And he was just about to sell the company to Symantec. And I convinced him otherwise. Um, and that was an incredible deal, which helped me get the next job and then the job after that. When you were looking at these companies and evaluating what you thought would be interesting, relevant, what do you look for? It's a kind of maybe similar question to what people ask me in terms of how I choose the artists that I choose. What are you looking for? How much is intuition? How much is research? Just talk right. a little bit about well, that evaluation. I think mine is a lot more straightforward than yours. I don't know how you pick your artists. And I want to ask you that question after I answer for you. Um, I look for a big market, to be perfectly honest, um, uh, a very large market. And, and, and I look for a problem that isn't solved by existing solutions. But if there was a solution that could fix that big problem, um, it would it would sell a lot of products. Um, and so, you know, an example of that, um, you know, is McAfee, right? So there weren't any viruses written for PCs. They were all written for Macs in the early days, which is kind of strange when you think mm -hmm. about it today. And then all of a sudden there was a virus written for a PC and nobody had any software that protected their personal computers. And that was a huge market. 
Um, recently, or I'd say maybe four or five years ago, I started investing in Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency related types of companies, partly because I thought, well, if you could disrupt money, that's got to be a really big market, right? And there's also the issue with identity, where um, there's so much fraud because people don't know the origin origin of something like an art or um, you know people's identities. And I think the blockchain helps solve that. So if you if that worked out, it could be big. And so that's kind of how I look at it. A lot of people they talk about management teams and founders, which I think are important, but I don't think it's the number one criteria because you could have a great founder in a terrible market and that's it is just it just won't work. So um years ago Harvard Business School interviewed four different venture capitalists, including myself, and they wrote a case about what do you look for when analyzing a company. And I just said market, 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 market. That's it. And and my favorite kinds of companies are companies that are doing well despite themselves. So they have a really big market. They might have an okay product, maybe not the best management team, and somehow they're just selling tons of whatever it is they're selling. Like the early firewall companies were that way, where they were protecting networks from bad people and and um, and things like that. So that's a great sign of a market. And so a lot of people would turn down a company that didn't have a stellar CEO, even though it was growing really rapidly because of that reason. And I would never do that. Those are my favorite because you can fix those things. And so, so how, do you, how do you pick an artist? <laughs> You know, I had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago who is an economist and specializes in the art market. And he was using data analytics to talk about how to be a successful artist and just wrote a book on the topic and pretty controversial, I think, within the art field, particularly because he said some things like spend less time in the studio, market yourself. It's all about your connections. And our field, the art field is more of kind of a soft field, I would say. And I am really interested in data and how those two things can potentially intersect. And my choices have to do, I think, with really yeah, knowing kind of where things will go. So I think that part of what I do is trend identification as well. Mm-hmm. And within the museum field, brand building. But I'm interested in something that I've never seen before, something that surprises me, something that might even make me a little bit uncomfortable, but that element of surprise that kind of stopping me in the continuum of time and space, that's makes me curious to know more. And it's not always necessarily something that I like, you know, but it, but it's something that, that I want to that I want to yeah learn learn a bit more about and for me it comes with you know 25 years of looking at art and a super broad knowledge of what's happened before and then also a kind of a gut feeling and intuition something that is surprising Maddie Mo is a conceptual artist and technology entrepreneur best known for creating quote the most famous artist Unquote. Through this platform, Maddie Mo and his global community of multidisciplinary creators make installations, stunts, and exhibitions that drive culture and penetrate the mainstream media. He and they are having a profound impact on the lives of so many artists and are doing so outside of the traditional realm of the art world. I 
I am an artist and entrepreneur that created an a art persona called the most famous artist. And if you were to Google the most famous artist, you'll find me next to Picasso and Vincent Van Gogh and Andy Warhol, largely because I was able to utilize um, the internet to create SEO relevance for myself. And as a result, I rank as the most famous artist. Does that mean I'm the most famous artist? Probably not, but it's a, it's a fun, uh, fun way to, start a conversation at a party, <laughs> Google the most famous artist. My practice has been going now for about seven or eight years. Over the course of those seven or eight years, it's evolved quite a lot as I've learned more about the art world, seen more art and embraced new technology that, will that has influenced my art practice. At the highest level, I have kind of two main goals with my art practice. One is one feels easy and accomplishable in the next few years. And then the other is a bit more grandiose. The first is that I'd like to help 10,000 independent outsider artists make an income of $100,000 a year so that they can survive and do what they love. And as a result, I'll have created a billion dollars of impact on cultural production annually. And I'm planning on doing that through my community that I'm building that we can talk about later. And then the second Wait, thing, is that the easy one or the hard one? That's the easy one. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> amazing. Okay, good. Uh, um, this, the second one, the harder one is trying to build like a semi-autonomous institution that powers the financing, production, and distribution of my art long after my death. So imagine like AI, cryptocurrency, machine learning, um, powering a, an, a, you know, an art persona that conforms to kind of my ideologies and my visual aesthetics, um, but continues to produce and distribute work long into the future. And that one's more complicated because of the state of the technologies that you need to utilize? Yeah, and technology's moving so fast, like NFTs weren't really that big of a thing until more recently, and NFTs are like one of the missing components of me realizing that vision. Um, so I guess, um, I guess it's just going to take a little time for the technology to come into place where, where I can see that vision through. But the, but the helping 10,000 artists survive and thrive seems really attainable. And, and we're kind of well on our way to making that happen. Let's talk about that. And then we can circle back to some other stuff. Who are the artists? And what's the strategy? And does it come from, well... I mean, there's so many different places it could come from, right? One is I know, one I know is, exactly I know exactly where it comes from. <laughs> Yale Yale rejected me from their MFA program twice, and this is a big you know f you to Yale. I I'm an outsider artist. I wanted to be included in in the conversations around art at the highest level um, because of my background and because of my practice. I was not admitted to their their program, and so I wanted to form my own community build my own education platform and create my own support system for artists like me who feel disenfranchised by the art world. And so there's really those three components of creating a place for creatives to learn, grow and collaborate. And these creatives are ev everyone from a stay at home mom that likes to do pottery to a practicing artist showing with galleries, all races, all religions, all creeds, all ethnicities. It's very uh, diverse in its, in it, its uh, demographics. 
it's around 300 artists right now, but we have a waiting list of 300 artists to join the community. It's all happening uh, on the internet, mostly because of COVID. We imagine a world where we'll come together in physical space. And I'll dig, I'll dig into the three, three components. So there's this community aspect, which is like what I observe making art is that it's a very lonely process. Um, you're in the studio, you're, you're trying to figure out if what you're doing makes sense. You maybe have questions that there aren't simple answers for unless you're talking to a community of artists. And that's what, that's what education or, or let's, that's what universities provide is kind of a community. So I wanted to create a decentralized, diverse, um, inclusive community where artists could share their ideas and, and coalesce around a spirit of collaboration. Um, and we do this through workshops, critiques, group shows, curated group activities, and that's, and that's one component. So, you know, on a weekly basis, we might have eight to 10 different activities that are community member led on our calendar that anyone in the community can attend, whether it's a figure drawing workshop or a portrait drawing workshop or yoga and mindfulness or an office hours with a, an expert on painting murals or doing licensing deals with brands. And all of this material is documented and cataloged so that new members can see what we've done in the past and contribute moving forward. On the education side, we're more or less creating like a centralized repository of knowledge. So I've had some success in my art career largely because I understand technology and I come from the startup world. And so I, my art practice very much resembles that of a startup in that I've iterated and I've built like minimum viable products and I've kind of tried to figure out how to find product market fit. And so what I've done is I've tried to open source all of my learnings so that my community can, can take those things and apply them to their art practice if it fits. But in doing so, my hope is that other people who have had success in their own practice will share their learnings, kind of changing the mindset from a zero sum game to a positive sum game. I think the, the art world, and, and this is a generalization, but the art world kind of necessarily creates artificial competition between artists as a result of there only being so many spots in galleries and there, there only being, you know, so many spots in biennales and only so many spots in these museum shows that, that more or less are like the status symbols that you've made it in the art world. In reality, you don't have to be in a museum to be a practicing artist and feel successful. You don't have to be showing with the Zvorners or the, or the Gagosians in order to be successful. So what we're trying to do is, is change the dialogue to that of how can, you, how can you do what you love, make a living doing what you love, and be part of an inclusive community. And that's happening through this, this education and community part. And then finally, support. Like, how do, you, how do you go about finding the right legal representation for your practice or the right marketing partners or which e-commerce platform ought you be using? So what we're trying to do is kind of give our community access to world-class tools, products, and experts. And so the community is built around those three things. And as a result, we've, we've been able to accomplish some really big projects. And we've had a number of artists who have seen a massive uptick in their ability to make work that connects with an audience and gain resources that allow them to continue to explore their practice. Sounds utopian. Um, yeah, I mean, art is, art is brain food and we want everyone to eat. You said that Yale didn't accept you because of your practice and your background. Can you talk about 
how you would define that and, and what you think they, they saw or didn't see or understood or didn't understand? Sure. So I can't speak to what the admissions team decided was the factors that made me not a good fit for Yale, other than the fact that my practice is a little bit wild. Like I do some pretty crazy stuff, largely because one of the main tenets of the most famous artist is, is like doing stunt work that generates headlines to create links that link back to the most famous artist, which creates the SEO relevance around the narrative that I am the most famous artist. And stunt art is not something that I've seen the art world take, take, um, take two over the years. Like, you know, Banksy's a stunt artist and he's probably the only stunt artist who the art world really celebrates. Other stunt artists are kind of viewed as um, less than, you know, less than performance artists or less than conceptual artists. But I'd like to, I'd like to go on the record and saying my stunts are conceptual and they are performance. They just happen to play with the media because that's the medium in which I'm, I'm kind of interested in exploring. The other thing is like, I think because I've connected with a lot of collectors on my own as an independent artist, perhaps there was a fear that I wasn't going to be able to fit into the box that is, uh, is necessary for an artist to be able to, to be picked up by one of the blue chip galleries after graduating. Like I have a lot of inventory out in the world that I've sold and I've sold it at very low price points, largely because I wanted to be able to, finance my career. And I, and I also didn't see, I didn't see a necessity in selling art for tons of money. If it didn't cost tons of money to produce, I wanted more people to have it than less. I didn't, I didn't kind of adhere to this idea of scarcity. And I suspect that, you know, I, perhaps I would have gone through the Yale program and not found a good fit within the art world and been kind of right where I started just with a little bit more insider knowledge in which I could kind of like do more stunts that fuck with the art world even more. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, but um, mess with yes, the art you world. Are. This is an artist heavy episode, which is one of my favorite kinds. And next we hear from Glenn Kino, who is an American conceptual artist based in Los Angeles. By integrating innovative methodologies with established art historical traditions, Kino orchestrates spectacular aesthetic phenomena that engage with and offer critical commentary on the collective contemporary consciousness. His work is omnidisciplinary. It predominantly includes sculpture, painting, filmmaking, performance, installation, and large-scale public work. His practice is fundamentally idea-based. Simultaneously, he also immersed himself in the study of computers and digital technology. So his practice includes mesmerizing and substantial creations and collaborations within the internet, entertainment, and communication industries. I was interested in magic because I was interested not in magic tricks or, or uh, is, and I'm still not really interested in, in magic tricks. Per se. I mean, I love them. Yeah. Uh, but but um, it was about systems of beliefs and uh, belief. And it, was, and it was also about the impetus was really about also the, the, the membrane between knowing and not knowing, you know, and, and, in a way. And um, I, I'd say, you know, I would, the, the, the short version of the story is I was, I was at Art Basel in Miami in 2008 and, and uh, it was horrible. And I, I had what, sent artwork to 
I guess, have my gallery sell it there for years, but I never attended. Uh, and my gallerist, uh, a fellow named Christian here at the time, was like, you know, you should come down. I said, all right, I'll, I'll go down. And got nothing else to do because <laughs> it's 2008. 2008, you know, uh, in 2008, financial crisis, people were jumping off the, you know, buildings. It was like horrible. And and um, oh. I flew back in, in, on the plane. I, I said, you know what? I quit. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I, didn't, like, I, I, like, I don't make art for this. I don't make art to go in this commercial environment. I mean, it, look, and, and, and by the way, very grateful to have and, and still be a part of that ecosystem, but that's just not the prime impetus, you know, for, for, you know, my practice. Right. And so I said, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to just shut it down, shut down the studio. And I'm going to study with magicians and see what happens. <laughs> he said, that sounds great. <laughs> and, and I said, that's, that's what I did. I shut down the studio. And I, but right by my studio, there was a, um, a magic shop now defunct, now out of business it was called Hollywood magic. And I went in there and there was a, um, a postcard for a, a, a magician there uh, uh, to take lessons, and you know, and so I looked at it. It's like Magic Dojo. This is a Japanese magician named Shudo Gawa, and uh, I had not ever really done a, a Japanese project, and this, this wasn't a Japanese project either. But I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to do this." It's like sounds interesting. So I called him up and I asked him if I could um, study with him. And he, at first, he said, "No, you need to uh, interview with me because it's like, it only takes professional magicians. It's not, you know." He doesn't have a, it's not like a huge class, you know? And so, so I, I went to interview with him and, and uh, I, I convinced him that uh, I was going to take it seriously, which, which I take all of my work and research seriously. And so he accepted me as a, as a pupil. And then uh, first thing he did was he had, he showed me this coin vanish and he held, he held a coin in his hand and he picked it up and then he blew on his hand. And then I swear it dissolved in thin air. You know, it just like, it just melted away. And I was like, that's so gorgeous. So easy. And he goes, well, that's our first, you know, um, trick. I said, great. He hands me the coin. He says, this is how you hold it. And, and I said, I said, I said, great. I said, you know what? I know you're going to tell me the trick, but I really don't care about it. I, I, I care, but I, I you know what I really care about is I want you to tell me why, because yeah. I'm, I'm really yeah. as interested in, in, in sort of like the, the, the whole apparatus around the, the effect more so than the actual just quote unquote magic trick. And so he says, look, take this home tonight and learn to pick it up a thousand times. And then, and then when you come tomorrow, I'll, I'll tell you how to dissolve it, banish it, you know? And I said, I said, uh, I said, great. Why? And he says, because when you're standing in front of that audience and you vanish the coin, you have to believe that it's just melting away in your fingertips. That's dissolving in thin air. Cause if you don't believe the most, no one is going to believe more than you. And I said, you know what? It just, it, it oh. just it, like everything, everything that I knew just like was like right there. Right. I just spoke to you for 20 minutes about fish tanks and coral reefs and told you it's a meditation on post-coloniality. Right. Like if I don't believe the most, you're not going to believe your listeners, not going to believe. No one's going to believe. I don't believe the most. So with that, I was hooked. I was like, you're done. I get it. I totally get it. And, and, uh, I was, I was off. And so I, I literally flew around the country and I met with some of the most significant magicians in the world and asked them, uh, you know, you got to know them. And amazingly, every one of them said, you got to go meet my friend, Derek Delgadio. And at the time it was amazing. I, I Googled Derek and this was like only 2008. There was still, I mean, Google is a thing. Uh, and he was, there was nothing on Derek, uh, which is the opposite of what it is now. because Derek is everywhere. Uh, but there was nothing about him then. And I said, I love this guy. And there was one post actually on a private magician's message board that said, who is Derek Delgado? I was like, this is amazing. So we met, we became, you know, instant, like great friends, you know, and, and, and best buddies. And we were, we were, we would do a night at um, my studio every day. And we would do an hour where he would teach me magic and an hour I would teach him art. 
you know, and, and we would talk and we went through just art history and magic history. And, and we started performing together as a performance art duo called a bandit and Prestel Delmonico married, uh, did our first uh, monogram and then a bunch of different shows. And now that has led to, uh, you know, the creation of in and of itself, um, which was a, a big successful off-Broadway show at the Daryl Roth theater for years. And now, now it's on Hulu. Um, so please check it out. It's amazing. I love yeah, and, and, and Derek and my stories are all about like our, our intention is that he, we would say that art, we recognize that art has the inverse problem to, to magic. Like magic is, is, a, is a handful of professionals in a sea of hobbyists where art has been hyper-professionalized, you know? And, and so we, we, we aspired to create a space, you know, sort of between, between art and magic where, where we would play, you know, that was sort of an elevated sense of what that practice could be. And, you know, uh, a, a more engaged you know, belief-driven sense as opposed to, you know, an analytical sense of what art should be and could be, um, you know, we've, we've been on a, on a good roll, so. Just interesting to think about why art works, right? So your question for your teacher was about not how it works, but why it works. Yeah. And we get really focused, I think, on the how. and. Yep. You know, when you know what the how is, sometimes then it's about kind of like demystifying things. And it's nice to be able to live with a belief in things that we can't understand. You know, I, I think that makes life more interesting. Even if we know there's a possibility of understanding something intellectually, it's nice to give ourselves the allowance of of not knowing and yeah. the, the opportunities that can come from that that philosophical space of, of not not just not knowing, but not needing to know, like that allowance of of something that is kind of magical or or unexplicable. And I think art has that possibility. It has the possibility of existing in that space. Like, yeah, you can know how someone can create something, but you can also just sort of be with it and you know and allow its presence. Absolutely. And and, and the on top, you know, in 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 conjunction with that, you know, is the gap between the artist's intention and the audience's read, you know, and the subjectivity yeah. there, which is such a beautiful opportunity also, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like if, if, if everything was meant to be literal, it would just be an essay. <laughs> right. That's what I said. If I could write, if he's like, oh, what's that artwork about? I said, if I could write the whole thing down, I would just write the whole thing down. I'm doing it because mm -hmm. there's a certain feeling, there's a presence, there's a gravitas, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a way that it hits you on the shoulders. There's a way that it you think about it later, there's an image that is burned into your mind. These things that you can't write down, you know, these things are not literal. When I first started this podcast, I was asking everyone why they think art matters. And as I've been doing more and more of them, it just becomes kind of woven into the conversation in a way. Yeah. So that it often doesn't have to be as explicitly asked. And you've done that through the course of our conversation and I feel sort of compelled to ask you anyway, because huh? I have a feeling you can distill it in a way that will etch it in people's minds in the same way that the experience of your artwork as a physical viewer does for me. Yeah, I think that I, I, I have often said, and I definitely believe that, it, you know, the, that art provides the excuse for the conspiracy that of your viewers of you as a curator of myself as an artist you know we're all in the process of we're all art makers whether or not our job title is artist and by being art makers 
what we are allowing is we are creating the space for new ideas to be put into the world. You know, we are creating the space for things to be considered in ways um, that are responsive, in ways that business scholarship and education sometimes who work on more linear timescales don't have the capacity to do. Some of the most radical ideas have come through artist studios. You know, someone said once to me, they were looking, you know, oh, this is so great. We need to invest in art so we could find the next Steve Jobs. I said, no, you don't. Steve Jobs is like a quantified based technological entrepreneur who happens just to be a kick-ass, stubborn, bullheaded, but very talented businessman. You know, you need to find the next Charles Gaines. You know, we need to find, yeah. we need to invest in, in the poets, you know, and the people who are going to risk their lives and their livelihoods and their careers to boldly suggest that there is a world that we all aspire to be part of and we're going to be able to teach each other you know the incremental micro steps to get there so that's what i think art can do kemi elisame has been a dmv clerk receptionist business school dropout minnesota state fair ribbon winner museum curator foundation officer and now executive director of the laundromat project a New York City arts nonprofit that advances artists and neighbors as change agents in their own communities. She cares about cultural and community care, hashtag Black Lives Matter, and all things Obama. This year, her organization was recognized by a major grant from McKinsey Scott. They then themselves paid it forward with five $50,000 grants to five POC-led nonprofits. So I have uh, two different circles of mostly women, um, either uh, current. I have a circle. Okay, I'll say it. it started off as a circle of seven women who were all executive directors that started about a year into my ED ship. And it started very organically. And it was this sense of need. Like, oh, my God, this is hard. Let me find somebody else to go through this with and to ask questions of. So we kind of, you know, started with two, invited some others. And before I knew, we were seven. Only two of the seven of us are still executive directors. That's amazing. Um, But not surprising. (laughs) Not surprising. No. To hear them tell it, they really felt they, I love what I'm doing. And to me, this is what I want to be doing right now. But for them, part of being, having the courage to move on, and a couple of them were founders, um, it was our sisterhood that gave them the space and the opportunity to say, I could do something different. And they're all doing amazing things and, you know, still adding to the world in beautiful ways. And they're still really good friends. And we still lean on each other professionally and personally. Um, But on the other hand, when I get a letter from the IRS or something else, they no longer knew the answers to those questions because they weren't in it anymore. Mm -hmm. So during COVID, at the top of COVID, my very first instinct, Heidi, was, I don't know what the hell this is, but I do not want to go through it alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was my first Mm -hmm. instinct. So by the end of March, I emailed 20-something friends, acquaintances, you know, just people I knew who were running organizations of the same general scale arts and like um, definitely arts. And generally same scale-ish, we're now at 2 million, but somewhere, you know, 2 million and under, many of them under. 
uh, well under, and then um, often community facing, right? So just kind of aligned. So people we are already knew, some we wanted to know, and um, uh, that the organization wanted to know. But this was really me, Kemi, just saying, can we just get together as yep. directors and ask questions? We helped each other through that whole PPP loan craziness and would not have survived that without them. Right. And now we're in reopening madness. Right. And all the conversations about reopening, everything that happened in between. And we could cry to each other. We could all the things. I have not met all of them in person. We are having our Mm -hmm. first in real life picnic next Friday. That's so great. (laughs) That is so great. And it's amazing. And I would not have made it through the last year without them. So it is something I really encourage is like find a community set up. And it's a listserv. We have a listserv and we have a standing Zoom call. Those are the only elements. This is not rocket science. It is not difficult and it's not fancy. Yeah. You know, it is such a great point. And I have a a resource that's sort of similar in a way. And it it does periodically have an in real life component. And I actually had lunch with one of the women this week. I mean, for the first time ever, but it's a Facebook group and it just, it has that kind of free flowing form to it. And people can post whatever they need to know there. And sometimes it is, you know, super tactical business oriented questions. And sometimes, frankly, it's questions about like, you know, bras and like, you know, which ones actually work, you know, and um, it's what you need. And I was thinking about what you described in terms of the laundry room project goals and objectives originally and, you know, building community and having people come together and just be able to have frank conversations and to be able to ask things that you just need to know the answer to. And it's great if you can actually ask a whole bunch of people um, because then it's shared experiences and sometimes you have something to share and sometimes you have something to learn. And sometimes what you had to share evolves and because you learned something different. 100%. It's just been so incredible. And now, you know, doing it in these different, you know, my, my sisterhood, we've been together for seven or eight years. And then this is just the last year. And they each have really fed and saved me and supported, right, to your, to what you're saying, like, is the support, the community building as a support system and being able to, yeah, laugh and share stories and also be like, no, this is what you need to do in this order at this time if you want to get your PPP loan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, there are so many things that kind of connect back, right? So this idea of being seen is also about not feeling like you're alone and, and we can get so kind of isolated. And and that's one of the challenges of an executive director role or, you know, the head of a not-for-profit, whatever your title is, you have to often reach out outside of your organization for that kind of um, commonality or support. And it, it can feel isolating. And as soon as you know, yeah, I'm not the first person that has had to deal with that, or I'm not the only person, you know, that has experienced this, or it just feels better. You know, it doesn't necessarily like solve the immediate issue per se. Sometimes it can, but it doesn't always have to. Just that idea that I'm not the only one is really helpful. 100%. 
And it is that it, it absolutely ties to that idea of being seen and not being alone. And one of the things that I also wanted to mention just for your question about kind of, you know, what do I love about the job and what, mm-hmm. what do I feel I've learned? Uh, one of the things that I feel I've leaned into, there are a couple of things. Um, the power of naming. I like to, I feel it's so important to articulate and to name. And I think as a woman and as a person of color, it becomes even that much more important in running an organization that's grounded in issues of justice, et cetera. So we've worked really hard at the Laundromat Project to define what love means to us, what our values are, um, mm. you know, our we all have missions, et cetera, but like really, really thinking deeply around these things. Um, and really, for instance, we, um, after a year of kind of not being sure, we've decided that we really like the term people of color and not BIPOC. Um, it, people of color has a provenance, we understand. Um, we know when it was founded, how it was used, who started using it. Um, it's a term of solidarity that has a history and, um, and, that ha- and that sense of coming together and everyone being inside that circle of the people of color for us relates to our issues of value, uh, issues of legacy, and issues of being really clear about what we say and how we say and why we say it. And that was a year, right? Because BIPOC came into, into um, Vogue or whatever last year and has caused within people of color communities has been really had some controversy around it. And we weren't quite sure what we thought. And then finally this year, we're like, oh, here's what we think. And here's why and what we're going to do. I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I'm not n- never going to use BIPOC. I'm fine with that being used by others, but for the LP, we had a politics that we felt was important and we wanted to name for ourselves. And we've done, we really, that's been something I've really led us to do over and over again. And is now part of our culture is to really try to be intentional around language and naming. So that's one thing. And I think naming our own sense of what is success, um, what are we measuring? Like I can answer something in a, in a way that will get us a grant. I, I, I do live in the real world. I will do that. But if you ask me in a more open-ended way, we actually have completely different definitions that matter to us and that we can articulate and connect to, and we are measuring our own selves on. So that's one thing that I actually think is really important. And then the other thing is, is the sense of emotions Going back um, a little bit to even this collective conversation with other EDs, some of our most um, searing and impactful and uh, conversations in the last year have been someone, sometimes me, um, more than once me, oh my goodness, I'm losing it. I emotionally, I don't know where to go or how to stand up right now. I don't know how to support my team because I'm going through the same pandemic they're going through. (laughs) Uh, But I do need to show up in a different kind of way. And how how can we support each other through this and allowing emotion to be part of the work? Um, which I think is very gendered and I own it. And I'm like, yes, it's a superpower. And to be able to connect to that and not tamp it down and then figure out how to move through it and to hold space for all of our emotions because the emotions aren't not there. It's just how do we deal with them? So I feel like I have honed 
my emotional intelligence in this job. And I consider it a superpower that will last me the rest of my life. And I think it's something I want to encourage and talk about in public. It is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay for your team and uh, to be human beings, because that's what we all are, and to bring that humanness with them. And that's something I feel really strongly about. I mean, hell yeah, that is awesome. Pulling from a wide range of mediums, including collage, painting, writing, printmaking, video, and publishing, Adam Pendleton uses language as his primary tool. He recontextualizes appropriated imagery to shed light on underrepresented historical narratives. He's particularly interested in social resistance and avant-garde artistic movements and has synthesized a variety of practices under a rubric that he calls Black Dada. It's a term borrowed from the poet Amiri Baraka. This year, Pendleton presented Who is Queen, a major new project in the atrium of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. One of the things I like to ask people on this podcast is why they think art matters. Why, why do you think it does? I think it, it, one of the reasons why it matters is that it articulates and informs ethical ways of being in the world and relating to it. I think it's that in many ways that simple. I think that's great. And I'm struck by the idea that the ethical needs all the help it can get right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think, I hope maybe that part of your answer, like your answer feels really timely and I am kind of the eternal optimist and I'm maybe hopeful that it it's not that that would be an answer that we wouldn't need anymore, but maybe it would have less urgency to it at a different time. Yeah. But yet things are always changing, right? So that which is not urgent today might be tomorrow. And I think that's another aspect of art, right? Is it's, It just doesn't inform today, but it informs the next day and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. So again, this kind of respect for and understanding for time. Are there questions that you repeatedly get asked that that you wished you didn't and or questions that you don't really get asked that you have answers that you feel are important to share? Well, you know, I I always get the question that I always get, which I find very curious because I don't think it's actually the question that anyone thinks about 
when they when they stand in in an exhibition or even even when they look at a work of a work of mine is about my palette and i think that's very curious because i think in the abstract as in when you're not in front of the work it seems to be something worth talking about something worth asking about but then i think when you're actually when you're in the moment when you're looking at the thing in in the flesh so to speak i think it really immediately becomes besides the point and i think that's an interesting thing about the virtual versus the real about how we're stimulated and how we situate ourselves very differently in relationships to things depending on how and where we encounter them. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the questions I've been asking people recently and I don't know why, but sometimes I get sort of obsessed with these ideas is this idea about advice. Hmm. And if you give advice and if you've gotten advice, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I'm I'm big on advice. Um, you know, I think anyone who's worked worked with me or works with me now knows that I'm one of my my first things is always let's find someone who knows. <laughs> you know? That's like, so good. <laughs> you know, like. And, you know, I even have conversations, you know, like, you know, with my studio manager and I'll say, you know, neither you nor I are the person, neither one of us should be answering this question. You know, (laughs) we're just not equipped. So let's find somebody who is, you know, (laughs) so I'm, I'm very, I'm, I really treasure expertise, you know, I, I really treasure what it, it takes to be an expert about something or in something or with something, you know? And I think it's one of the most amazing things we do as individuals is that we do dedicate so much of ourselves to become, you know, an expert in in something. So I think I think that's such a great question because I think advice is so overrated. I think we all think we can hop on the internet and, you know, read an article and, you know, start doing something or start talking about something. And it's just not the case. And I think that's why I move so slowly with my own body of work because I need to know it, right? I need to educate myself about it. And it takes time to do that. I love having these conversations so much because I learn new things. And I've always been an advocate for connoisseurship, right? Because that's sort of expertise within art. And the idea of knowing that someone who spends a long time doing something is just better at it than someone who has only read about it, right? On the internet or asked someone how to do something and, and valuing that kind of, yeah, time that someone's put in and that kind of commitment. 
So I really like the way you articulated that and, and about why that, why that matters. There's these, there are these great videos, Heidi, of Nina Simone uh, when she was clearly struggling with mental health issues and before, and you, it was so palpable. You could really read it when, you know, looking at a photograph or, or footage of her. And yet when she sat down in front of that piano and started to play and started to sing, it was this incredible transition <laughs> that that occurred, you know? And I mean, I'm even thinking about dancers who, and I won't name names, but I have seen dancers who can, in their actual life can barely walk, but then when they get on stage to perform, they become weightless, you know? <laughs> it's, it's um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's worth taking notice of, that's what I'll say. That transformational possibility, I think, is so inspiring. And, and that's part of the seductiveness of, of art and creativity. Absolutely. These, these projects that endure, that, that, that are built by way of and through a kind of unimaginable commitment. Yeah. Conversations About Art is part of Art a multi-platform project that connects all to art through a podcast series, books, talks program, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.